live? Okay, cool. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2015. I'm Jeff Salzman coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where it is a stunning fall night. And the yellow leaves from the ash trees are just pouring down like a rainstorm outside my window as we speak. I'm here, as always, with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How's it going, Brett? I love this weather. <laughs> Did you finally get us uh, all hooked up with Integral Radio? Yeah, we were just waiting for Corey to sort out a technical issue. And uh, we know how that is. Yeah, so. I do indeed. And we're joined by Corey DeVos, who is handling things over at Integral Radio. Thank you, Corey, for putting it together. And uh, a thanks to all of you who are joining us live tonight at our new home at Integral Radio, which is a new feature of Integral Life, the leading web portal for the worldwide Integral community and the web home for Ken Wilber's latest work. You'll notice that there is a group chat screen at the left of the Integral Radio webpage, those of you who are joining us live. And Brett and Corey will keep an eye on it as we go through the show tonight and send questions and comments my way. And I want to say that I also know that we have a lot of listeners uh, these days who are not necessarily integral junkies and don't know integral jargon. And, you know, for that reason, I try to minimize it. The, the, the Daily Evolver is about really expanding the audience for integral ideas. But there are some terms and a couple charts that are really fundamental and really helpful. Uh, one is the altitudes of development chart, and the other is the quadrant chart, which um, lays out the dimensions of reality. <laughs> and I really do encourage you to pull them up if, if you can. Uh, you can find them at the dailyevolver.com, uh, where you can click on the theory tab at the top of the homepage. And Brett, normally you put them in a link in the live chat window too, right? So yeah. You'll be doing that here tonight? Yeah, just cool. did it. All right, cool. All right. So what we talk about here, generally, on the Daily Evolver, are current events in politics, culture, spirituality, economics, war and peace. Uh, and we look at all of what's happening in our evolving world through the lens of integral theory. Tonight, I want to focus on the issue of political polarization. We hear often about the legislative gridlock between the Democrats and the Republicans in Washington, D.C., and the Republicans are even polarized among themselves right now, unable to choose a Speaker of the House, you know, which is the third in line to the presidency. It's a big job. It's you know, determines the business of the Congress. And, you know, they're polarized amongst themselves. But never fear, fellow integralists, because in our procreative cosmos, nothing stays the same. Nature abhors a vacuum and evolution abhors constipation, even in Congress. So we can only hope that resolution when it does come, comes with a minimum of pain, but don't bet on it. 
which is why we say here at The Daily Evolver that evolution may be beautiful, but it's not pretty. So at any rate, in a few minutes, we'll look at the issue of polarization and the, the, the hidden powers buried in it and how an evolutionary view helps us to find our way forward. But before we do, I want to focus on a couple things that have come out of the integral world, a couple works that I think really move the ball forward. And, you know, it's in something that I've really wanted for a long time, which is a, a true indigenous integral spirituality that is distinct from progressive spirituality, which is the spirituality of the green postmodern me. And an integral spirituality really does absorb the lessons of evolution and it, it, it presents the, the lessons of evolution. And I think there are two really significant new offerings that I want to focus on. One is a, a self-directed web course created by Ken Wilber himself called Full Spectrum Mindfulness that was released yesterday uh, by Integral Life. And what's most exciting to me about this course is that Ken really shows up as a spiritual teacher, presenting a mindfulness practice that is not just a mixture of the best of existing contemplative practices, which is typically in integral, we say, okay, there's meditation from this tradition and there's prayer from this tradition and we add them together and we mix them together. But there's an integration, not just a mixing that wants to arise. And I really feel like Ken has got his finger on it. And, you know, normally Ken writes books, but in this case, it's a, a video course. And as I said a minute ago, one of the things that integral philosophy brings to the spiritual quest, brings to everything, is its insight on the evolution of consciousness and culture. The Buddha didn't see culture as evolving. For him and for Orthodox Buddhists today, the world is represented best as an endless wheel of suffering. I often say that Integral at least improves that picture by making it an endless spiral of suffering. But still, that's, there's no evolutionary view in Buddhism. That's also true of Christianity, which sees the world as a hopelessly corrupt place and offers salvation in a new world to come, the world of God, heaven. So there is a potent spiritual teaching here, in both of these religions, and in really all of the axial religions that come from this time in history about 2,000 to 2,500 years ago, and that is that this world, this world that we live in, is an illusion. Even Albert Einstein said that the typical world that most of us live in that's bounded by time and space is, as he put it, an optical delusion of consciousness. And Jesus said, this world is not my home. And we can expand our identity to include a much bigger reality, an ultimate reality, a reality of God, of liberation, of nirvana, which is outside of time and space. It's the reality within which time and space arises. And the realization 
of this ultimate reality is what we typically call enlightenment. And in integral terms, we refer to this as the enlightenment of waking up. Waking up to ultimate reality. But then integral also adds another axis of enlightenment. And this is an insight that comes online at modernity, and in fact, probably in the last hundred years, where modern developmental psychology and neuroscience in the last generation, really, reveals that there are predictable stages of development that human beings go through as they grow up. So the grow up axis and the wake up axis. And people grow up through childhood, you know, to be sure, and we've, you know, mapped the stages of childhood development to a fairly well. But what we also realize is that there are stages of development through adulthood. So we call this second axis the growing up axis. So we have waking up and growing up, the horizontal and vertical axes. Now, you don't have to remember any of this, except to know that what Ken has done with his new product is, you know, really developed a spiritual practice that incorporates both of these. And as far as anybody can tell, for the first time in human history. Now, I, as a integral intellectual, or egghead, <laughs> have, you know, for years been thrilled with this understanding of, you know, one type of evolution is, or one type of enlightenment is a waking up to this ultimate, timeless, primordial reality. And the other type of enlightenment is growing up to ever higher stages and expression of my own identity. And that is, a, you know, as I said, a thrilling realization. And it made so many of my spiritual conundrums fall into place. Uh, for instance, I can see that there are people who can deeply realize the unity and bliss that are underlying all of reality. And that is, of course, the waking up. But they can still be ethnocentric or even egocentric in these axis of growing up and be developed in their identity at the level of a teenager or even a child. And we have spiritual teachers who, you know, fit that profile. They have great spiritual realization, but arrested moral or interpersonal or emotional realization. So we want to do spiritual practice in a way that helps us do both of those things. And I always wanted, you know, I've worked with Ken for years and know him and love him, and I've always wanted him to come up with, you know, a real program for doing this as a teacher, not just as a panda, not just as a philosopher, because Ken has a lot of realization on both of these axes. And so he has, and it's called Full Spectrum Mindfulness and I think there's a special deal too, but I'm forgetting what it is. But check it out on Integral Life. It's really, uh, it's, it's worth checking out. So the other major event that 
I want to mention here uh, in terms of the evolution of evolutionary spirituality is the publication of Steve McIntosh's new book, which is called The Presence of the Infinite, The Spiritual Experience of Beauty, Truth, and Goodness. Now, on The Daily Evolver last week, we posted a full interview on the emergence, we called it the emergence of evolutionary spirituality, which is a full conversation with Steve and me on his new book. It'll also be on Integral Life in a few days. And we talked about Steve's thesis that an evolutionary spirituality must bring forth the practice of, get this, the practice of the love of God. Surprise! Now, that, in addition to the non-dual realization that comes online in the green postmodern or progressive spirituality, which a lot of us have been marinating in for, you know, many years, you know, meditation and yoga and Eastern practices and even um, uh, contemplative prayer, which is, you know, basically a type of meditation that's non-personal or at least less personal. Uh, but for those of us who, you know, are in that progressive spirituality, it's a startling assertion that the love of God is actually next. You know, a lot of us spent a long time growing out of that sort of mythic level of belief. And uh, so anyway, we talked about that. And we got a good bit of response, one of which was a, um, a voicemail from a listener named Dina, and um, she left a message on our SpeakPipe, it's called. It's a, it's a voicemail system that's on the dailyevolver.com site. And I encourage you, if you're, you know, want to give me some feedback or commentary or whatever, you know, click the button and talk, and I may respond, I may use it on the show, whatever. And uh, at any rate, uh, Dina did, and here's what she had to say about um, Steve McIntosh's thesis about recovering the love of God in our spiritual practice. Having left Christianity about 10 years ago, listened last night to the emergence of evolution, and uh, I'm sorry, I could not go back to a God who watches, a God who looks after us. But I am at a place where I can use the word God again, which is wonderful. And um, can sit in nature, feel this amazing presence of love and this energy that holds the universe together. And that's such immense progress and wonderful. But yeah, again, last night, trying to wrap my mind around going to a God who is that personal, that just loves us personally, knows who Deneen is, knows who you are. That just, uh, just doesn't work for me, but I really, really enjoyed listening to it. It was fascinating to hear and wonderful to engage the way you were in, in real listening and possibility. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Deneen. Uh, and I get it. I mean, I have the same kind of problem. I really have a lot of antibodies to that mythic God. I, there's no way I want to go back to that. It feels suffocating. It feels contracted. 
It doesn't feel liberated at all. But is there something about the nature of reality, and particularly divine reality, where there is a personal quality? Ken pointed this out in his um, thesis in Integral Spirituality, where he talks about God in first person, second person, and third person. And the God in second person is very personal. And we can relate to him, her, as a creator, as a mother, father. And, you know, I do it, maybe I, I, I might be, you know, a, a little more in the theistic direction than Deneen, uh, in that I'll at least sort of work with it as a experiment uh, and pray as an experiment just to see what happens. And, you know, for those of us who really, it's not about developing a new belief system. It's about opening to a new energetic that, you know, modernity and post-modernity has been pretty closed off to. Uh, and rightly so, evolutionarily speaking, because modernity and post-modernity, part of its job is to wring out the myth and superstition that keeps people at pre-modern stages enthralled in these, you know, mythic stories of good and evil and, you know, conquest and war that are still bedeviling the world. So, um, yeah. I think it's just, you know, we're just sort of working on it. And one of the things that uh, Steve talks about in his book is that there is an indestructible polarity that is built into the universe. There are many indestructible polarities, masculine and feminine and freedom and security and, you know, many. Uh, and one of them is in the spiritual dimension, the polarity between the non-dual which again is the realization that comes back online for a lot of people at progressive or green postmodern spirituality, and theism, where there is a God that is posited. And that these, this non-dual and theistic poles is built in, and that there is a potency that arises between the two of them, so that each of them become more interesting and more, as Steve says, trued up by incorporating the other. And you can see that at this stage of spiritual development, it's not about belief in the way that we used to think about how we had to believe in things and believe in God and believe in religion and believe in doctrines. It's about experiencing the divine in real time, using these perspectives as tools. And so just right there, we can see the potency of polarity thinking, that theism and non-duality are more juicy when received together than either of them are when they're just practiced on their own. And that's really a point that I want to make about polarity in general as we get into the sort of main story, which is political polarization. I'm going to use particularly America here. That there is actually a potency 
that arises out of the polarity between political left and the political right. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned on this show here that I was about to go to a conference at Esalen in California, the famous retreat center where the, you know, post-modernity was basically born uh, in, in, in the United States. Uh, you know, the famous nude hot tubs. They were all there. It's all great. It's on Big Sur in California. So I went to a conference there. It was on political polarity. And it was an invitational. People were invited. And it was mostly people who were working on the issue of political polarity from various national think tanks. We had people from the left, people from the right. There was 25 people or so. The people from the organization called Third Way. Perhaps you've heard of the organization No Labels. Um, people who are working to get money out of politics. People who were specializing in creating these big, juicy town square meetings with voters. And really, really interesting group of very, you know, happening people. And the orienting premise for the conference was that political polarization is a bad thing. It was assumed that everyone agreed with that premise. And of course, you know, we can just see with, you know, plain eyes and common sense why people come to that conclusion, because we can see that there are indeed many big problems that are not getting solved in Washington. Uh, from the right, the problems are entitlements, deficits, too much regulation, uh, immigration problems, people you know, overrunning our culture. That's the complaint from the right. From the left, the complaints are about income inequality, uh, wars, foreign entanglements, civil rights, that sort of thing. And from an integral perspective, we can see that there's a reason that these big problems are not being solved. And the reason is, <laughs> it's almost too simple, the American people are very divided on how to solve them. It's not just the government that's polarized, the people are too. And from an integral perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, we can see that this kind of polarization, that people disagree, that people are in conflict, is built into the evolutionary fabric of the cosmos and always has been. Um, we see it in nature as, you know, animals compete, you know, red and tooth and claw get eaten and run out of their nests. And I mean, it's hideous to watch, um, but that is the nature of creating a species that is ever more fit and ever more, you know, capable. And we see that in the history of humanity as well, and, and, and even American history. You know, we had, of course, intense polarization when the country was founded. Uh, we had the Revolutionary War where the Patriots were fighting the Tories, and we had, you know, 100 years later, the Civil War, where, you know, what a hideous experience that was. Two percent of the population of the country died in that war. 
just for context, uh, that would be the equivalent of 6 million people dying today if we were to have that kind of a conflagration. You know, brothers against brothers, sisters against sisters. Um, it was astonishing. Uh, World War II, we, we often think of World War II as the great war and the greatest generation, and this is a time when America got together to fight the Nazis. Well, that's true in retrospect, but in real time, I was just reading a book called This Angry Time, which is a history of the pre-World War II era uh, when Roosevelt was president. And uh, there was, I mean, we think that there's an anti-immigration bias in America now. I mean, at that point, you know, the Nazis were ascendant in Europe and in America, American German clubs were being bombed all over the country. There was a, a, a hysteria of, of, of what they called super patriots, which sort of has a certain resonance for the patriot movement now, um, where, you know, they believed that there was a famous fifth, fifth, F-I-F-T-H, fifth column of secret Nazi sympathizers who were coordinating a German attack on our East Coast. And, you know, many, many people believe this. And it makes anti-Sharia law look like nothing. And, you know, at that point, we also put Japanese Americans in detention camps. Now, there's a certain feeling that after World War II, there was a consensus in the country. And, and I think there was, in a certain way, uh, the, the great enemy, of course, was fascism and communism. And those were, at least fascism, was defeated soundly in World War II. So, you know, the victors sort of all felt like brothers. You know, there's no Republicans or Democrats in the foxholes, as they say. There's no politics there. But were the 50s really so united? And Fareed Zakaria just wrote a column last week that I thought was really good, and it was really educational, and he talked about that the 50s weren't so peaceful. There was a lot of polarization then, too. And I'll, I'll read a little bit of what he wrote. He said, I was struck by how today's mood resembles that of the 1950s. We now think of that decade, the 50s, as the United States's high watermark. But at the time, the country's foreign policy elites were despairing that Washington was passive and paralyzed in the face of Soviet activism. Quote, 15 years more of such a deterioration of our position in the world, this is Henry Kissinger writing in a book called The Necessity for Choice in 1961, he said, this would find us reduced to fortress America in a world in which we had become largely irrelevant. Unquote. The 50s abounded, this is Fareed Zakaria still writing, the 50s abounded with what seems in retrospect to be deeply dangerous proposals designed to demonstrate U.S. vigor, including deposing Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, military confrontations in Hungary, and the use of nuclear weapons over Taiwan. There were a lot of people, including Kissinger, who were advocating the use of limited nuclear weapons in the 50s. 
pundits were outraged that North Vietnam and Cuba had gone communist, while the United States just sat and watched. In the midst of this clamor for action, one man, President Dwight Eisenhower, kept his cool, even though it sank his poll numbers. I believe that decades from now, we will be glad that Barack Obama chose Eisenhower's path to global power and not Vladimir Putin's. He was talking about Putin earlier in the column. So, you know, there is a poll in America that's kind of indestructible that says that America is the exceptional country and that we ought to impose, because we can, we ought to impose our will on the rest of the world. It would be to the good. There's an argument for that. And then there's the, you know, poll from the left that says that we have to, you know, that if we look at Vietnam, if we look at Iraq, if we look even at Afghanistan, Libya, all of the places where we have interfered in the last, you know, well, since Vietnam, is that, that it really hasn't gone well. This is the left's view. So that's an enduring polarity in the country. And then we had, you know, the riots of the 60s. We had Watergate. We had the problems with Iran, with Jimmy Carter, the hostages, and the, with Reagan, the Iran-Contra affair. We had Bill Clinton's blowjob. <laughs> we had Bush versus Gore in 2000, and now Obama. And, you know, I mean, there are ways to argue that it's worse now than ever, but geez, really? Worse than, you know, any of what I just talked about? And we realize that as integralists, we actually have to get friendly with the idea of conflict. That conflict is one of the engines of evolution. And, you know, that conflict, actually, we can even see an evolution in how humans fight each other. We used to do it for most of human history up until, you know, really maybe 70, 80 years ago. We did it with, well, first, we did it with clubs and stones. That's We knocked each other over the head. And then we, you know, evolved into bombs and bullets. But now, uh, at least for the developed world, I mean, there's still people at traditional and below are still doing bombs and bullets. But once people get to modern, you know, at least modern countries dealing with other modern countries, we are operating not from this physical realm anymore. We're actually trying to hurt each other's bodies, you know, kill each other. But we're now competing in what we would call an integral, the subtle realm, or the realm, not of physicality, but the realm of the mental, with the realm of ideas. And so, you know, we see that in American politics. I mean, nobody's really getting hurt physically. I mean, that wasn't always true. I mean, there's a big, uh, famous, um, newly famous show on Broadway called Hamilton about Alexander Hamilton and his great feud with Aaron Burr that ended up in a duel uh, with pistols where they shot each other. Uh, this was in uh, shortly before the Revolutionary War. And, you know, in, in that era, we had fights, literally fights, breaking out in Congress where they weren't just assassinating each other's character. They were 
punching and, and, and you know, and, and, and hitting each other. But that has changed. Uh, but still, you know, even though we could say that we've evolved from, at least in the, in the developed world, from bullets and stones to operating with ideas and maybe cyber warfare, economic warfare, you know, these are still better than, you know, physical warfare. But still, in all first-tier structures, uh, the problem is monoperspectival thinking. The thinking that the way I think is right, and people who think differently than me are wrong. And if they refuse to be convinced, then they're bad. And if they further refuse to change their behavior, then they are evil. And that is the basic assumption of every first-tier meme. And that gets us up to integral. So that includes the green meme or the postmodern meme. And this is just the nature of monoperspectival thinking. And we see it in our politics today. You know, we talked about that the Republicans are in charge because they're, they're the majority party in the House of Representatives. They're in charge of electing the Speaker of the House, but they can't because there's a subset of the Republican Party called the Freedom Caucus, which used to be the Tea Party, that are passionately committed to small government. I mean, on the poll between security and liberty, they are way over on the side of liberty. They deeply believe that the way for society to be organized is for everybody to be left alone. Get your hands off of me. Don't tread on me. And uh, that that will create a better world. And every Republican politician promises some version of this, that they're going to shrink government. And this has been happening for a long time. But it never happens. And, you know, so government grew under George Bush, the last Republican president. It grew, of course, under Clinton, but it, we'd expect that. It's a Democrat. But it also grew under his father, George H.W. Bush, before Clinton. And it even grew under President Reagan, who is the hero of the small government folks. Now, he's forgiven because, you know, he was the first one to take on big government, at least in modern times. And he did change a lot. He turned the ship around a good bit. And Reagan has become mythic. And of course, a lot of conservatives are still at the traditional stage of development. And one of the markers of that stage of development is the idea of um, myth, that there are great myths and there are great mythic leaders that we have to wait for uh, to lead us out of the wilderness. And that Reagan has become that, of course, for the the monoperspectival rightists. And, you know, you can hear it. I think Ted Cruz is the Republican candidate who best really exemplifies this, where you, know, you can hear it in his rhetoric where he talks about, we have to stand strong against this juggernaut of government propagation. We're David versus Goliath, but 
like David, we can win against the giant because God is on our side. Now, he doesn't really quite say that God is on our side. I mean, maybe to some of the religious people he does. But, you know, there's a secular version of that where we have, you know, these deified founding fathers, Reagan's in there. We have a scripture which is the Constitution. These are just the, this is the nature of traditionalist thinking is that they're, you know, great leaders. They're, there's, a, there's a, you know, holy scripture. And all we need is to stand and fight and we will win. And so with that kind of an attitude, you would actually rather go down in flames than compromise. Compromise feels like, I see we, we got a comment from, uh, from Lynn, uh, that, you know, wh- when did compromise become a dirty word? Well, always in the sense that from a traditional standpoint, compromise, when you see that the world, as a traditionalist does, sees the world is divided between good and evil, compromise means, you know, supping with the devil. And I'd rather actually die and become a martyr, a martyr and go to heaven and be, get my reward there. And so, you know, you can begin to see some of the problems with this kind of thinking. We see it with Donald Trump, with his terribly politically incorrect views of immigrants, et cetera, where he's, you know, his policy is to deport 11 million people. And, you know, my liberal friends are appalled by his ideas and his language and you know, the fear is that it'll open up the floodgates to open hostility to minorities. And, you know, I think there's some worry there. But ultimately, I think it's good because a lot of people feel this way. You know, they feel that their culture is being um, threatened and, in fact, overrun by people of different cultures. And, you know, we have to stand up and take America back. And that is running right now, the Republican Party. And so here's what we get. We get to actually trot that idea out. So between Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump, that idea that immigrants are the problem, that, you know, they have to be deported, especially Donald Trump, Uh, that idea actually gets to get trotted out into the marketplace of political ideas. And let's just see what happens. And we know what happens. What happens is the same thing that happened last night in Canada, where Stephen Harper, the prime minister, who was also running on a vaguely anti-immigration platform, was unceremoniously voted out. And the simple fact is that the majority of Americans don't agree with the Freedom Caucus, with the Donald Trumps, with the Tea Party, with the anti-immigration movement. I mean, they may have some sympathies and they may have some ideas of, you know, working with them. But that hard monoperspectival ideology is not going to prevail. And so... That's cool. That's progress. It gets to be fully with the full light of day. It gets to be defeated instead of just held on to as some sort of a, 
you know, vague, fused, uh, emotional complexion that has me feeling like my country is being overrun. I actually get to tease all of that apart, take it out into the public sphere and see it be defeated. And that's what happened, actually, if you look back, uh, that's what happened to the liberals back at the, in the 60s. Uh, we had, you know, this uh, ideas of social engineering and busing and, you know, aggress- aggressive um, affirmative action uh, in foreign policy, a pacifism. Uh, let's bring our troops home. Let's withdraw from these uh, conflicts in the world. In terms of culture, we had the counter counterculture, drugs, sexual revolution, and George McGovern sort of carried that into the public sphere back in 1972, and he was obliterated in the uh, you know election. So this is, like I said, progress after George McGovern's ignominious loss, Democrats didn't touch this kind of liberal orthodoxy. It's still, they still don't. They're just now sort of, you know, wading back into, you know, with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and a little bit of Hillary here, where we're beginning to talk about an oligarchy and that sort of thing. That's new. That was, it took 30 plus years for Democrats to begin to, you know, re- enter that territory. And that's actually one of the great, you know, benefits of polarization is polarization actually gets us to tease apart these sort of fused, vague, uh, emotionally laden ideas into clear ideologies. And when one of those ideologies is clearly defeated, then people do one of two things. Most people give up. They change their mind. People don't want to hold on to defeated ideologies. The liberals didn't. You know, nobody's arguing for busing. Nobody's arguing for pacifism. But a lot of the intelligence that was that were part of those ideologies have come online. Uh, and this is just the nature of the human procreant urge for progress and creativity, is that people give up when their ideology is defeated. And of course, not everybody does. There are, there are the dead-enders, and they just have to die. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, they'll hold out to the last dog, and, and, you know, and then you know, we wait for their funeral, and we get to then chalk that up to progress. And maybe we wait three days just to be respectful. So, so there's an integral lesson in all of this, and that is, is that it's, it's, it's almost like meditation. When you sit in meditation, and let's say you sit in meditation, and you're working with the fact that you're in a bad mood and you're really angry. So in meditation, you can sit and look at this big thing called anger and realize that, okay, I can tease this thing apart and see that there's a, a movie playing in my mind about my friend who is, you know, let me down and I'm angry with her and I have a narration 
and I have a whole story that I'm telling, and I can watch that story arise out of my mind. I can see the pictures. So like a movie, there's, there's sound and there's image. And then there's also body sensations. And I can see that this anger is a red-hot ball in my belly that has uh, you know, a, sort of a flange that goes out into my throat and chest. And, you know, you can just watch it. You just tease apart this bad mood into its component parts. And as we do that, we diminish its power because we see with more and more clarity what's actually going on. And this is the same thing with this sort of vague anti-immigration policy. We learn about, or this vague anti-immigrant feeling. And we learn how that teases apart into trade policy and education and employment and culture. And so where there was this one thing that was driving me, now in my more enlightened state, if you will, my more intelligent state, I just have far more components to work with. And when this happens... Um, you know, there's a lot of new opportunities. We see that in many cases, the extremes of both of the polarities begin to bend around and meet. And so you have this phenomena in American politics where the Freedom Caucus, the, the, the so-called Tea Party, actually is making a lot of common cause with the Occupy Wall Street people on the left who see that indeed our economic system is rigged for the rich and that there is unacceptable corruption and an oligarchy that's forming that hasn't been at this stage of uh, prominence since the late 20s, before the Great Depression. We see this happening in criminal justice where we have Obama praising the Koch brothers for their financing of criminal justice reform. And so the extremes will meet. And then also, you know, institutions, when they become frozen, we just, you know, human beings will not be stopped. We will not be constipated for long. And we will work around them. And so we see this with our Constitution. You know, this sacred document, that actually it's pretty fungible. And so we now have uh, presidents who uh, issue more executive orders. I think it would be astonishing to the founders of uh, of the United States Constitution to think that a president could launch a war without consulting Congress. It's unconstitutional. But it has happened over and over again in modern times because the, the, the Congress can't sort of get there. Or that we would make a treaty with Iran uh, with the sort of comprehensive consequences of the treaty that, um, or the agreement, it's not called a treaty, uh, that uh, Obama just came up with, with the uh, you know, Ayatollah in Iran without congressional approval. Uh, which of at least not a majority congressional approval. And that is, again, 
you know, not what the founders imagined, but it's interesting how we just work around. And, you know, I noticed there's always sort of a bemoaning of that. And, and we saw it today in a column by David Brooks, who I normally like, and uh, I think he's has a lot of integral impulses. And I actually liked his column today in a certain way. But once again, and he does the, this same column every three or four months, where he's bemoaning the lack of faith that people have in our central institutions in the country and how these institutions are decreasing in in, in terms of people's regard. And I'll read a, a little bit from his a column today in the New York Times. He says, each central establishment, he's talking about the institutions of government and war and peace and so forth, are weakened by their own hollowness of meaning. They're being ripped apart by the gravitational pull from the fringes. He says, democracy, especially in the, in the United States, has grown dysfunctional. The uncertain Republican establishment cannot govern its own marginal members, while those on the edge burn with conviction. Jeb Bush looks wan, W-A-N, I love that word, wan. But Donald Trump radiates confidence. In the economic sphere, mass stupidity and greed led to a financial collapse and deprived capitalism of its moral swagger. Where is all this heading? Maybe those in the fringe of politics really will take over. Say hello to President Ted Cruz. We are heading towards an age of exhaustion, losing confidence in the post-Cold War vision. People will be content to play with their private gadgets and will lose interest in greater striving. And I'll read that last sentence again. He said, losing confidence in the post-Cold War vision, people will be content to play with their private gadgets and will lose interest in greater striving. Well, okay. I think that um, maybe we will lose interest in a greater striving at least through the institutions that have been in place up to now. Uh, if that were true, if we would grow tired of our current institutions, that would be in keeping with all people of all times. That's what, what people do. We get tired of what we have, which leads to our innovation and change. Because each stage of development, and we know that this is you know, one of the insights of integral theory, each stage creates problems that can't be solved at the stage at which they were created. It calls for the solutions to come from the next stage. This is just part of the deal. And I might even argue with David Brooks that playing with our gadgets is actually part of the solution. With my gadgets, I am at once a citizen of the world. I am a passionate member of the global culture. And in addition, I am also a member of whatever subculture that I am particularly or individually passionate about, whether it's woodworking or beekeeping or parenting or art or music or dance 
or games or sports or spirituality or philosophy, I can find friends and colleagues from all over the world who share my particular idiosyncratic interests. So if I have a problem with my dog or with my boyfriend, I can, for instance, go post my problem on Reddit, which is one of these big community sites, and within 24 hours, I can get dozens, if not hundreds, of answers from people who have an opinion about it. And furthermore, these answers and opinions are voted up or down by the whole community, so the best answers are at the top. And so, wow. You know, it's not just like as if I had consulted a friend or a psychotherapist or a clergyman or even my wise father or grandfather or whatever, or dear Abby. There's a wisdom of the crowds effect that adds exponential experience and wisdom to the equation. And this comes from our gadgets. So, you know, I don't have to talk politics with my neighbor Dorothy or my uncle Ralph anymore. That's not my, you know, I have bigger options. I can join any number of political forums and be with people who see the world the way I do, or at least mostly the way I do it. And, you know, to the degree that we differ, I can argue and I can, you know, get other perspectives. And this is where humanity is moving. I mean, these are new institutions, you know, David Brooks. We want to, of course, honor what's good about what we're what we currently have but let's not get blinded to the idea that better stuff is coming and we have to preserve what we have at all costs so this is you know these are some of the insights into the power of polarity and how polarity takes something that was sort of a fused a few SCDs fused, you know, ideas and emotions and opinions and things I heard from my grandparents and my teachers and my Bible and, you know, and teasing them apart through this process of social conflict and consternation so that I can see the component parts and begin to work with them in an ever more intelligent way. And this is how polarity moves the ball forward. It's basically just the stage on the path. It can be a painful one. And, you know, we can see from history that it could be a dangerous one. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to be an apologist for, for polarization or for bad government. But I also don't want to see in it that we are in somehow some kind of an unprecedented contraction that um, is leading to the end of the world, which is, you know, an old sort of story that's told by humanity that I think we're growing out of. So I want to end the show with a recording that I did with Steve McIntosh yesterday, where he talked about some of what we were talking about now with polarities and, you know, how we actually move the ball forward. And he makes the point that every stage of development has what he calls a method uh, for, you know, basically uh, interpreting the world. And that these methods are very powerful and they're new. And, and, you know, the classic one, of course, is the scientific method, 
which is the method of observation and experimentation rather than just receiving scripture. That was the previous stage. Um, so we have the scientific method really delivered humanity from the traditional stage of development to the modern stage of development. And that there is a method that needs to arise around the integral stage of consciousness. And so for the next, I think, six or seven minutes, we can listen to Steve uh, talk a little bit about this uh, and how it relates to his thesis in his book, The Presence of the Infinite. So, Brett, could you play that for us, please? Chapter 8, the final chapter, is entitled Toward a Method for Evolving Consciousness, with the idea being that the emergence of this integral stage, if it really is to be the next major stage of human history, as we think it is, and it seems to be showing all the signs, then it's going it's to have many affinities with the emergence of modernism during the Enlightenment. In other words, the events of the Enlightenment from 1650 till you know, about 1800 have a lot of uh, elements of emergence which we can look to in terms of what we can anticipate with the emergence of the, of the integral or evolutionary worldview. Right. So obviously modernism emerged through a variety of, of key uh, features, but the scientific method was a, a big part of it. I mean, indeed, the rise of science was paramount in the emergence of the Enlightenment. And we can see in, in a way that the scientific method was a distillation of the values of modernism, and it, it gave it a power to see more deeply into a reality and improve the human condition in, yeah, a, in, right in you know, amazing ways. Like scientific medicine is perhaps the greatest uh, way of improving human well-being ever envisioned by man right. and humanity. This sort of points to the fact that the emergence of the integral worldview may indeed bring with it and and have the potential to, to create a method. And so what would that method be? What would be the, the equivalent of the scientific method? Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a, a kind of a social medicine that could help us gently persuade people to move from one stage of consciousness to another. Hmm. You know, in other words, gardening for emergence is is actually something that Integral allows us to do with new clarity. But the key insight that that leads me to think that there is a method that we can get to. In other words, right. I don't have a full blown uh, you know manifesto of the method for the Second Enlightenment, but I, I'm beginning to explore you know, the possibilities and the premises that make such a method seem possible. And the key premise is that if we look at history and, and see what moved people from one stage to another throughout history, it's in some ways the, the new truth, the new beauty, and the new ideals of morality that are exemplified by a, an emergent new stage that have the gravity to pull people from one stage to another. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to understand that the beautiful, the true, and the good are forms of spiritual experience— then one conclusion that we might reach is that it's really spiritual experience itself that raises consciousness, that Mm -hmm. does the persuading. And so this idea that the beautiful, the true, and the good lend themselves to a kind of a method for evolving consciousness. And maybe, you know, method is too too analytical a word. I mean, it, it gets our attention and sounds promising, but you know, a more accurate word might be approach. You know, mm-hmm. we're gardening for emerge emergence. We can't we can't do social engineering and expect it to happen. We have to persuade people on their own. But the idea that the the, the values of a higher stage in its both its emergent stage and as it exists to pull people up the spiral through what Ken Wilber calls conveyor belts, mm-hmm. that that this. Um, this understanding of how higher values gain traction, that they have a sort of gravity, uh, is an important part of the method. So just one more point about this. 
the openings, uh, one of the premises of the method that I try to describe in, in chapter eight, is that the openings for emergence within one stage up into another exist where people have existential problems that they can't solve at the level that they're at, right? Einstein's famous quote is that, mm -hmm. you know, that some problems uh, require, uh, you know, thinking at another level of awareness uh, than the one that created them, right? So the existential problems, for example, in pre-traditional consciousness is that they're always at war, right? And, and the values of traditionalism gain traction on that existential problem, which can't be solved within red because it provides social order and some degree of law. And then, of course, that creates the very success of traditionalism creates another existential problem that is oppression and, and lack of uh, upward mobility, which then helps illuminate the values of modernism, which you know solves those problems at a higher level. Modernism, in turn, uh, creates problems of meaning. Right? People get all the status and material that modernism has to offer, and then they say, "Is this all there is?" Right? Postmodernism then gains traction on the problem, that existential problem of modernism with the higher values of postmodern, which pull people into, you know, a wider horizon of self-actualization, right? But postmodernism, too, has an existential problem, which is created by its very success, and that is the problem of political impotency. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, the, the recognizing that climate change and social justice are, are higher and more evolved values, right? Huge accomplishments of postmodernism. But because those accomplishments have been made by pushing off against, you know, the establishment and the mainstream, adopting the position of antithesis, that very antithetical position that rejects the larger society means that the ability to persuade the larger society to vote and consume in ways that take these larger values into account, they're stymied, right? So integral gains traction on that problem of political impotence and cultural isolation, and offers a synthetic view that can better include modernism and postmodernism. And that very truth, you know, the truth of the spiral of development, mm -hmm. the truth of these stages of consciousness, this internal cultural ecosystem in which we all participate, mm -hmm. that truth itself raises consciousness. Mm -hmm. So when we then understand that almost every human problem is at least partially a problem of consciousness, you know, if we were as effective at raising consciousness as we are at curing disease, then we'd have a real method that we mm -hmm. could use to gently persuade people to move up across the spiral throughout the world. And this would have a tremendous effect at, you know, addressing some of the challenges that we face at this time in history. Right on, Steve. Well, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Daily Evolver tonight. I hope we shed a little bit of light on um, the problems of political polarization and, um, you know, showed how we can maybe at least rouse ourselves for two cheers for political polarization it's painful but again as we say evolution it's beautiful but not pretty okay gang thanks for listening check in again next week next tuesday night as we come back with the daily evolver live and until then this is jeff salzman brett walker and Corey devos signing off